Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in transport energy and future fuels. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant of Transport Energy Strategies. And with me today, I'm super pleased uh, to have with me John May, who is the Managing Director of Hamilton Clark. So let me tell you a little bit about John. John is a career investment banker who specializes in all forms of debt and project finance. He is a seasoned project finance investment banker who has financed a significant number of projects and companies in his 25-year banking career. He is credited with having pioneered the use of bonds as a form of project finance debt in the renewables market. And in the past 10 years, he's become one of the top renewable energy bankers in the country, having developed a national practice in renewable energy finance, focusing on biofuels, biomass, biochemical, and bioproducts. I've known John for a number of years. Um, We talk uh, fairly frequently, and I'm super, super happy to have him on the program. John, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Tammy. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you, John. Um, So um, for the listeners who aren't familiar, especially those of us who really don't know much at all about project finance in general, can you talk about what Hamilton Clark does and more about your role within Hamilton Clark? Sure. So Hamilton Clark is a boutique investment bank. We're a classic broker-dealer regulated by the SEC and FINRA. We have seven offices, I believe, in the U.S. We're growing. (laughs) And uh, uh, the firm's been around for about 25 years. It was founded by a legendary banker, John McKenna, who is uh, our president of our firm. He was at Lehman Brothers uh, for many years, um, and then he formed this firm. he was one of the early um, Wall Street investment bankers to embrace renewables and particularly uh, to express an interest in uh, biofuels and, and low carbon fuels and other products. So um, basically what we do at Hamilton Clark is uh, we work with early stage technology companies and what we provide are several different ways to go about raising money. We uh, go to the market and raise uh, equity for early stage companies, um, usually beginning with what we call the Series A round, which Mm -hmm. is the the first round of significant equity after friends and family uh, that you would raise if you were starting your company. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do follow-on rounds, of course. Um, The other thing that we do um, that you mentioned is project finance, and that's where I come in. Um, because I've been doing project financing uh, for 25 years, uh, particularly focusing on biofuels and industrial biotech. And um, my specialization seems to have been uh, uh, financing first commercial scale projects. That is to say, projects where the technology has never been scaled to commercial scale before this time, and we are seeking project finance, which consists of debt and equity, uh, to fund that project. Um, and we can talk about, about the history of the, mm-hmm. the, of the sector there. The third thing that we do, and the final thing I'll mention uh, as a firm, is we do 
uh, mergers and acquisitions advisory work. Uh, there are a number of early stage technology companies that um, have a particular uh, attraction for uh, strategic investors. Um, think of big oil or big chemical or any number of different strategics. And we might start out raising equity uh, with that intention and then realize that we're talking to Exxon <laughs> and Exxon saying, <laughs> why don't we just buy this company? <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I think that's basically what we do. And uh, um, what I would say is that what I hope to contribute in, in the time that you're, you've been generous to give me today is a perspective on where we've been in uh, biofuels and where we're heading mm -hmm. and, and kind of uh, a, a finance person's perspective on that, which is different from other uh, people that are in the industry. Um, and I think that, that what the finance person brings more than anything is a sense of uh, realism to what can be done what technology can be commercialized? How long does it take? How much does it cost? Mm -hmm. uh, what does that journey consist of? What's real? What's real out there? What's real? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as opposed to people that are out there thinking, I want to get in on this bio and low carbon fuel revolution, which is constantly expanding. Uh, I think of biomass and industrial biotech as this constantly expanding space. Where when I started out, it was just ethanol and biodiesel 20 okay. years ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now we, have, now we have all kinds of fuels. And barely biodiesel, by the way. There wasn't that much around. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. And now we have, um, you know, people are talking about uh, hydrogen, um, methanol, uh, both being green, yeah. uh, a whole host of other uh, potential sources of fuel, quote unquote, depending upon whether it's for cars, for airplanes, sustainable aviation fuel, biomarine fuel, you name it, I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so let's get into some of the questions that you were talking about, because that is exactly, you know, exactly what I think many people are, are wondering. What are you seeing out there? You've been in the space for, for, for a, a long time. What are you seeing out there when it comes to uh, project finance and, you know, and how is the, the energy transition, um, you know, commitments to net zero, green recovery from the pandemic, how is all of that um, kind of, kind of affecting the, the project finance space? What are you seeing out, out there right now? You know, uh, Tammy, at some point within the last year or two, I think you'll agree with me, we, we crossed a, a line in a good way. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, uh, not only traditional financial investors, um, but also the growth of um, sustainably motivated funds, uh, Gates's Breakthrough Ventures mm -hmm. and many, many like that, right? Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's, rec it's, it's recognizing the absolute primacy of this problem and that we have to get going with investing in uh, decarbonizing the planet. And one way to do that, obviously, hugely, is everything having to do with fuel. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that um, uh, the 
the thing that that's done for the finance markets is, this is going to be really silly and obvious, is it's made it a lot easier to raise money. <laughs> because when, when you have, when you, have um, you know, Richard Branson or Bill Gates or any one of a number of, of uh, smaller, uh, less well-known players, um, uh, you know, having their own sustainability funds. When you have um, Jigger Shaw, who is, you know, one of the brightest minds in the country and mm-hmm. is now the head of the development uh, uh, of the, um, excuse me, the uh, D- Department of Energy Loan Programs Office. Right, right, right. You have him taking that role. You know we're getting really serious because this is a gentleman that understands uh, not only the bio and low-carbon fuel space, but the entire clean energy space and where everything fits. Um, the other thing I was going to say that's really made a difference as part of this change is, um, you know, if you if you think about it in simple terms, when you um, when you start out and you invent a new way of doing something you're typically an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and you're typically facing uh, or competing with an incumbent, uh, you know, well-funded established corporation. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is the entrepreneur, this is corny, but it's true. It's the entrepreneur that brings the new ideas, the new technologies um, that sometimes work with the existing um, incumbent technologies and sometimes leap over them. Uh, The thing that people, I think, forget about is, and I think this would be my central uh, uh, idea for the podcast, is that entrepreneurs do not have the money, uh, and it's very hard to get the money, to change the world and move to a scale where we're, we're seeing biofuels and, and low-carbon fuels and products and so forth ready to go. Uh, it takes time, uh, and it takes money, and it takes a process to do that. And, and I'm not certainly blaming the establishment, but it's not uh, – it's a, it's a human uh, trait uh, that – you know, you love what you've already got. And yeah, we love inertia. We love inertia. <laughs> exactly. Right. They're, they're, not, they're not just thrilled to get up in the morning and talk about how do we quit doing the business that we're doing yeah. and how do we help this entrepreneur? Right. And, I, and so the, the last little point on this that I think uh, your listeners will find um, interesting is that when people um, ask me what's the toughest thing about financing, uh, companies, technologies, projects. The toughest thing is that these early stage entrepreneurs have to raise early stage equity. Um, that is equity at the parent company that they formed. Usually they have uh, intellectual property, right? And patents and, and technology there. And so they have to raise some money there. And then, uh, you know, they, they need to move forward and, uh, and raise uh, additional monies. And um, the most difficult money to raise is that first round of equity. Um, and the reason it's so difficult is, I think, threefold. 
One, it's very risky capital for the investor because you don't know if somebody has a pilot or demo level, whether it's ever really going to work. Yeah. Um, the second reason that it's difficult is that um, there is so much competition among all of these different technologies, even within the industrial biotech space, yeah. for the attention of institutional investors. Globally, it's it, there's a um, one of my friends called it a cognitive dissonance, meaning there's all these great ideas uh, moving toward the market, the investors, including strategics, financials, um, and then these sustainable funds. And the average fund manager is looking at this and saying, "My God, everybody oh. has an idea. Everybody <laughs> has an idea about." About how you know they want to reinvent fuels, or or uh, you know uh, just about every product on Earth. You know, and I mean, it, it, it's really amazing uh, in terms of bioproducts. Also, um, you know, waste recycling and and remediation and all that is sort of yeah. bound up in uh, and included within industrial biotech. So, um, you know, you have all these ideas coming, and it's very difficult for even the most um, seasoned fund manager, by which I mean an investor uh, that's got private equity, let's say, mm-hmm. from individuals and institutions, um, and they're trying to take this money they're managing and they're trying to make smart investment decisions so that their uh, investors uh, that have put the money with the, the uh, fund manager are going to make money uh, mm-hmm. and not uh, lose their shirts. And so almost every day I have a call with a developer or a technology company, and they say something akin to this. They say, we've got a new technology that takes some sort of feedstock, waste or or perhaps purpose-grown energy crops or biomass, whatever it is. Um, and we have a conversion technology that's going to convert that into a biofuel or a biochemical or a bioproduct. And um, they have a specific um, niche market that they're getting the feedstock from. Yeah, it could be it could be just municipal solid waste, or it could be uh, crop residue. The hottest thing right now is. Uh, with all the forest fires in California and all this, you know, the sadness there, yeah. what we've seen is uh, trying to use wood on the forest floor, which has yeah. been a cause of these fires, as a feedstock, uh, a biomass feedstock to create fuels and and products. And that is really hot because it's hitting on two hot buttons at one time, right? Yeah. Solving that environmental problem, uh, which is enormous and global on the feedstock side, and then solving the, the decarbonization of, of fuels um, from a different source. Yeah. But but back to my last point, and I'll pause uh, and let you let you talk here. I was gonna say I'm so excited to be here. The the <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the the thing that happens to me every day, I'm on about eight Zoom calls a day, you know, so uh, five days a week. So you know I, I think Almost everybody that calls me for the first time says, John, I've heard about you and I've heard about your firm and we're interested, like to find out more. 
And here's the deal. We want to do um, a project, let's say, a couple hundred million dollar project. Yeah. We don't have any money at all. In other words, we don't have any of this early stage uh, so-called pre-project finance. We call it development equity because right. develop, we're developing. You have to develop yourself. You're ready. So the biggest challenge for industrial biotech and biofuels and bio in general globally, this isn't just you. Yeah, it's, it's all over the world, is um, the lack of um development capital the lack of a clear um approach to accessing and getting investors to put development capital in given how risky it is right and early it is and the fact that um and, and I, this is going to be a, con a slightly controversial comment but mm -hmm. the fact that the strategic incumbents are not providing until recently, when they, some of them have, uh, you know, big oil. Now they have to, yeah. yeah the, the venture funds, right? Yeah. Inside, you know, the big oil, mm -hmm. but 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 they're they're not providing enough development equity to enough technologies, given the demand for development equity, and that is the biggest hurdle or the biggest boulder, sort of in the room, in terms of progressing these technologies forward, is the um, absence of an organized um, uh, investor market for development equity, like we have one for project financing, we have one for traditional corporate equity, but that that er that really early stage equity that's being used to get to a first commercial scale project and then beyond. There's it's not like you, there's a hundred people and I have a list that I can just call them and I know they're going to just love this. Uh, right. Right, you have to design the investor list, and then um, and then design your pitch to the investors to get through that cognitive dissonance I mentioned, and then get to uh, a point where um, somebody's going to invest with you. So, so is that something that is because I was going to ask you how how do you fix um, this gap? Is that is that the answer? Is what you were just talking about with respect to sort of organizing? Um, you know, this for the for the development finance piece. And by the way, who are the in, in investors um, in the space? I mean, is, um, you know, who are, you know, what is their their profile? I mean, and is this something also that Jigar Shah, um, you envision him, um, you know, kind of addressing this um, at DOE? Ah. Uh. That I don't want to comment on. <laughs> yeah, because who knows? But 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 uh, <laughs> yeah, because uh, uh, he still. knows his agenda, and he just yeah. it, But I have a lot. Sure. Of him. Admire him a lot. Uh, but getting back to your to your point um, earlier, um, you know, I, I, I think the, um, the the problem is that um, we're just starting to see. I talked about crossing that line mm -hmm. of acceptance. Right. I mean, my my daughter and son are really all about you know sustainability, right? And and so uh, I think what we've seen are uh, several things that I can observe in terms of the financial markets and the investor markets, and that and then I'll talk about who's in the investor markets. Uh, the first thing is people are recognizing on the investor side that 
they are being watched. It's almost as <laughs> if you have a teacher that is keeping score all of a sudden. Um, I know you've noticed this. and, and Yeah, absolutely. It, right? Every major um, strategic player, and there are various strategic players types, right? But every one of these is now being, my word is scorecarded, mm-hmm. right? Keeping score of how they're approaching sustainability. Are they doing anything? If so, what are they doing? Um, what is their program um, in terms of outreach? Um, so the development of that, um, that, 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 that line, that invisible line that changed everything was an overall societal accountability that's been imposed on energy, including fuels, but not limited to fuels, on energy producers um, and other strategics uh, that said, look, where do you stand on this? Because if you don't stand for it, and if you're not doing something about it, then what do I say? You're going to be uh, not thought well of. Um, you're not going to be doing as well as a business. Um, and some people are simply not going to invest in you yeah. flat out if you don't have a sustainability program that they think is is yeah. realistic. I think it's more than that, too. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's cancel culture in, in action. Um, you know, it is uh, we will cancel you and we will be sure your customers cancel you. And we will be sure the future generations, ergo your children and such, and the Greta Thunbergs of the world will will cancel you. So what are you going to (laughs) do? Well, let me explain a a little bit more about uh, about how I see this playing out in real life. How I see the the relationship between our clients, the technology companies and and the developers and so forth versus the investor market. Um, You know, I think um, there are basically uh, three segments of investors that I would identify in what I would call institutional Wall Street global finance. By institutions, I'm talking about corporations, organized entities, uh, anything from a family office uh, uh, to a sustainability fund to a financial firm like a private equity fund or a bank or any type of financial player you want. Uh, So you've got um, uh, first financials, second strategics. Uh, The strategics, uh, particularly big oil, has done a tremendous job uh, given (laughs) how they're having to reverse course, right? In setting up in-house venture arms, a number of the the leading ones are in Houston. Yeah. I have friends at, at most of these venture arms, and they're doing the best they can. <laughs> it's not like they've been given a giant budget, uh, right? Yeah. So they're they're doing that. Um, the um, the third so financial strategics, and then the third part I mentioned earlier, sustainably motivated funds. That's that's usually a fund that uh, has. A, a very wealthy, you know, person out front, or it's it's a fund that is sponsored by a nonprofit organization in the environmental space, and they've been able to aggregate a certain amount of money, and they want to make a difference with respect to their programming and their uh, what they're concerned about. 
you know, things like, um, you know, there's specific sustainability funds for things like the oceans and, and mm-hmm. the plastic waste problem and so forth. And then there's more generic sustainable funds. And then one last thing I was going to say, coming back to the financials, what's, what's remarkable to me is how, um, you know, the really well-known uh, Wall Street financial firms, BlackRock, Macquarie, Carlyle, uh, you know, Citibank, uh, name whoever you want. They've mm-hmm. all come out publicly and stated that they're going to consider low carbon in their uh, investing decisions. Um, and uh, they want to commit to a certain you see this commitment expressed in different ways by different companies and, and so forth, but they want to get to a certain carbon neutral uh, or decarbonized uh, state by a certain date. And this this feeds back into what we talked about earlier, which is the idea that that's what the countries are asking for around the world. They're asking for that accountability. And I think when when you get uh, you know a, a major uh, financial firm that everybody respects that's invested in all kinds of industries, not just energy and not just certainly not just biofuels or low carbon right. fuels. And they're saying, we're going to invest and we're going to get to low carbon, however they define that standard, um, by a certain day. And I think that really changes the dynamic between um, the uh, technology company, change agents, entrepreneurs on the one hand and the market, because now it makes it, it instead, instead of it, it being, ah, can I get up this steep hill? It's now, it's now a little bit closer or perhaps lower, however you want to visualize yeah. it. And, and that's what's so exciting about, about our practice and, and what we're doing. And I do see that trend continuing. I do see um, that trend that you're just talking about different different groups of investors, um, you know, really making a push, really making a commitment toward low carbon. I think I just saw something yesterday. I think it was Goldman Sachs. I'm no longer investing in in coal. So I think you know, I think it will continue to that gap or that, you know, that hill will, you know, the mountain will maybe become more of a butte, (laughs) so to speak, (laughs) or maybe a hill. Um, And maybe also part of it is, um, you know, perhaps there may be a realization on the part of investors, and you can tell me if this is true, that, you know, we really cannot decarbonize uh, solely on electrification or solely on um, electrifying the light duty fleet. We really do need, um, you know, lower carbon, low carbon, net negative uh, fuels for hard to decarbonize sectors, aviation being one, heavy duty trucking being another, shipping uh, being, you know, another. So um, I don't know what you think about that. If, if there's sort of a, you know, as, as time evolves, that there is more a realistic view about what it will really take and the types of technologies that will be needed. That's a great question. I think I would say a couple of things uh, about your observation. One is, I think you're right that, that biofuels um, are going to be around for a long time. We're not going to have an electric airplane, at least 
I've only seen one or two <laughs> articles from <laughs> the source on that. So, uh, you know, and I represent one of the biggest sustainable aviation fuel players in the world mm-hmm. and uh, have, have done other first commercial scale projects in sustainable aviation fuels. So I think that's fantastic. Um, over the road uh, vehicles, uh, I mean, uh, I'm certainly not going to slam um, the whole uh, electric vehicle uh, situation. Sure. But sure. how could you? Um, when we get into issues about um, batteries, uh, charging stations, the infrastructure yeah. that we need, how do we get to a, a battery that um, we, we probably never will, but, but the idea is we can't have a battery that blows up. We can't have a battery that has to be right. um, that, that lasts a, a year and that's it. I mean, right. we have to get to a point where, um, you know, there there is a long-term solution provided as an alternative to biofuels mm-hmm. um, that makes um, technological and economic sense. Right, right. So I want to ask you about, because you're, you, you're, you're, you, you, you've, you've lived it all, you've seen it all, or you've seen a lot. You've certainly, you know, there are these, these technologies, there's lots of players that um, you know, have come and gone. There are um, companies that you know, are making it out of the, quote, development uh, valley of death. Um, and there are some that have, you know, that didn't quite, um, that didn't quite make it. What kinds of technologies are you beginning to see in your own I- experience as a banker, you know, begin to, uh, to make it out of that, that valley of death? Which ones do you think have the most um, uh, potential right now, and knowing that technology is ever ever evolving, and somebody will come up with something that's, you know, that 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 this space is not static and continues to to sort of evolve. But what are you seeing in your own experience? Right. Um, <clears throat> well, looking at uh, biofuels first, and we can talk about other types of bio things. But um, you know. There haven't been a lot of John Mays out there running around trying to do biofuels the last 25 years. And most of the um, companies and projects that did something, tried something other than traditional ethanol from corn or uh, biodiesel from uh, soybeans uh, had problems uh, and uh, investors lost money. But then new feedstocks came in. Um, and uh, it wasn't, you didn't have this situation that, that uh, was at the root of the, the industry's difficulty at the very beginning, which was there was no correlation between crop prices and energy prices. I don't know if anybody listening is old enough to remember this, but there were people that were positing, I'm not blaming them, just pointing out a historical fact, that there, mm-hmm. they were positing that there was a natural hedge between the agricultural economy and the fuel economy, and there, there isn't. And I, I think around 2007, uh, right before the crash, you know, corn prices went way up and oil prices went way down, and all of a sudden, ethanol didn't work anymore, right? And people right. Said, wait a minute, that's not supposed to happen. And believe me, it was it was really really awful. Right. So I think that I think that set the tone for the notion that. Let's really think about uh, the technology and what it's doing, what kind of fuel it's creating. Let's think about where we're getting the feedstock and, and, and how do we put together something that 
first of all, can make money. Because if it isn't going to make money, nobody's going to invest in it. And so what I've seen is this slow but but determined growth in bio of um, advanced biofuels, um, biochemicals, uh, just about every type of industrial or personal uh, uh, care uh, type of product being recreated uh, with some sort of bio uh, process or with some sort of bio ingredient. And I think, again, my kids' generation is looking at this and saying, well, of course they are, right? Yeah. <laughs> 25 years ago, you know, um, the idea that we would have, um, I'll just use this because I'm thinking about my daughter, you know, that, that, that we would have skincare products for women that have a, a complete bio, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, lineage to them and how they're developed and they're specifically marketed that way. And they're incredibly popular. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, also thinking about my daughter, um, she has a, a huge closet of clothes. <laughs> Well, clothing is being made in a, in a, a sustainable fashion now. And I could go on and on and on and on. But I think that um, getting back to your basic point, I can make a couple of observations about um, what specific attributes uh, these technologies uh, have that are, that, are, that are drawing in the most money quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think a couple of things. Um, <clears throat> If you look at companies um, that are using artificial intelligence, are using computerization, digitalization, I'm thinking about companies uh, like Zymergen, for example, mm-hmm. uh, just throwing that name out. Um, there, there are a number of them that, that um, are essentially um, using the technology to design in the laboratory a feedstock that can then be used to create a, a bioenergy or bioproduct output that has customized characteristics and traits. Wow. And, and one, of the, one of my heroes in the sector who I worked for early on was uh, Jennifer Holmgren of Lanzatech. Yeah. She was one of the first ones that, that really put this all together. Um, I don't know anything about thermodynamics, but she knows a lot. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, and and now that I think what we're seeing is um, the customization of uh, this conversion technology, um, and also the customization of the feedstock. From is it a plant? Is it waste? Is it a crop? What is it? To it's just a cell in a in a tube in a laboratory. Um, and 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 the uh, AI and the uh, the science behind that um, is what's driving um, the ability to create advanced biofuels and bioproducts and really bio everything you know bio silverware bio plates yeah. right uh, and what it's doing is it's uh, accelerating this big tent that is industrial biotech far beyond what it was 25 years ago when it was really mostly just uh, first-generation biofuels. Yeah. 
And I think yeah. it's going to continue along that line. Yeah. What I see is, is another attribute, and I, I think you kind of talk about it um, or, or get to it in your, in your comments, is there's a flexible nature uh, to it. It's flexible in its range of applications, and it's flexible um, in its um, particular uses of feedstock. So, you know, for example, SAF, um, you know, one producer I'm thinking about that I know you, you know, they can use woody biomass, uh, they can use municipal solid waste. Uh, they can go beyond that uh, as well. That makes it very, uh, I think, attractive in terms of um, uh, carbon intensity, um, in terms of sustainability, but also, um, it, it's a it's a it's a hedge, I think, against uh, potential risks. In other words, they don't have to worry about uh, you know potential spikes in soy oil or whether you know Greenpeace is going to excoriate them um, for you know for using a um, a food based feedstock, uh, for for example. So that's that's what also comes to my mind. Our processes that are um that that have that nature and then for the for the fuels aspect of it for transport energy is how can it be assimilated uh how easily can it be assimilated um into the refinery because that that's where i see things uh, potential there will be standalone facilities for sure but i also see adaptations and evolution of uh, what we understand as uh, refineries. So technologies, and I'm not just talking about renewable diesel, I'm talking about future technologies that would rely on these sort of these processes like gasification, fissure, fissure tropes, um, hydrothermal liquefaction, you know, all these kinds of um, all these kinds of terms. You know, how can it be adapted into the refinery? And and again, you know, I think. It's all about carbon intensity and net negativity. If net negativity can be achieved, um, and for many of these technologies, they can um, through the addition of uh, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, or just of their own merits in the case of renewable natural gases, you know, that's the name of the game. I think we are going to go, those, those technologies that can achieve the, the, the net negativity, I think will be... The, the best off. That's what's going to be needed. And I think that's what's going to be valued in, in policies and, and by investors and so on and so forth. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. <laughs> no, I think those are brilliant observations. I, I really do. I think that uh, a couple things, uh, we're already seeing um, big oil uh, sell off some of their existing refinery assets yeah. to who? to renewable mm -hmm. uh, developers. Uh, and I'm not going to mention anybody by name um, on either side of that a tra a transaction, but um, I think it's, it's only sensible that you want to use existing assets that already are there. And you know how big these um, uh, oil and gas and, and, and chemical plants are, if you've been, you know, uh, down into uh, South Texas, you know, they just go on forever. So th there's an enormous number of assets that can be converted to a, a, a more decarbonized uh, production. Um, and it'll, it'll be a, 
it'll it won't be a com, you know complete shift all at once. It'll take time, um, and you're already seeing, as we've said several times, that um, the oil companies are are trying to invest through their venture funds. So you see two ways of investment happening. One, the use of their existing refinery assets, and the other is just their capital being put behind certain technologies. Um, yeah, so um, I, I'm not sure I touched on all of the points that you uh, mentioned, but uh, yeah, you, you hit the highlights. But yeah, I, I think I think you're right about. Um, I think I think you did, and I think you're you're right about uh, what you say about the refineries. Yeah, I guess the other thing I, I just remembered was. The idea um, is um, that we're going to continue to see um, as successful the companies that do what Alanza Tech has done. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and let me describe that in the way that a finance uh, banker guy would or, or gal would. And that is, um, you, you've heard this um, expression probably uh in conversation if not at the jim lane events or whatever i mean this idea of uh platform technologies yeah. a platform like a tabletop is broad enough to hold up and support a number of different feedstock options exactly including yeah. scientifically created feedstock in the lab and to produce an array of different output products, some energy and some not. Um, I think the companies that are going to get ahead uh, faster, this is no stroke of brilliance on my part, <laughs> it's pretty obvious that the ones that are going to jump ahead quickly are the ones that um, have um, optionality on feedstock and optionality on output product. And the reason that that's so important is if go back to my earlier war stories about, you know, the early 2000s um, with ethanol and biodiesel, one feedstock, one, maybe two outputs, but one major output, yeah. right? Hey, if those prices aren't aligned, you're in trouble, baby. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. So I think the, the platform technologies, uh, Genomatica is a great example. Uh, there, there's just a whole bunch of them that are just um, Solazyme, uh, Amherst, you know, the, the, all, all of those uh, historically important companies in our space. I think that's what's really, um, that's where we're heading. And um, I think that um, people are continuing, um, technologists and um Inventors are continuing to contact Hamilton Clark and saying, we've got a better way of getting to a lower carbon score, a cheaper way, a faster way. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's that that's the way in which the industry is growing as opposed to growing by, by sort of leaps and bounds where you're you're going from, you know, crop based fuels to fuels made out of all kinds of different things i think that what you're what you're seeing you know is um you know there, there are incremental changes that are happening all the time yeah. and um we're trying to figure out as a as a country and then as a uh, looking at the market as investors what do we think we want to get behind um and um 
because you you could have this this brilliant sort of widget that you create that is a conversion technology and it has this incredibly predicted yeah this incredibly low ci score let's say for sustainable aviation fuel or or something else and you say okay that's great if it works yeah <laughs> but yeah. i'll take a i'll take a less low so, 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 that's a, an oxymoron but a less low <laughs> um, uh, carbon score if we can get it done and then, and then improve the techno- improve the technology. Hopefully, over time. I mean, even ethanol has evolved. It's not the same fuel um, that um, you know the, the 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 ethanol that was being produced in two thousand five is worlds different. I think in most cases, if not all, than is what is produced in twenty twenty. And that is, you know, there's, that's, that's one thing I've sort of observed is I think people tend to think about uh, technology in general, because I hear this on the electrification side too. It says, you know, people talk about batteries, you know, as if batteries will not improve, as if we won't move away from lithium and cobalt in future years. And it's the same for, and that's not true. um, And it's the same for renewable fuels. I think people think about uh, renewables or the biospace as very static when in fact, it's actually really, really quite um, dynamic, I think, um, you know, especially in the advanced space, but there's even been evolution in the, in the 1G space um, as well. Can I mention one uh, thing related to that before? Yeah. Because I'm going to forget it if I don't mention it. Sure. Um, I said that I think that the biggest problem, <clears throat> excuse me, facing the industry is the lack of development capital for early stage entrepreneurs. Right. That's clear. I think the second biggest problem in the U.S. um, is the, um, I'm not going to call it a controversy, but the difference of opinion about how to look at the RFS and the LCFS. Yeah. uh, The low carbon fuel standard, which, of course, has gone far beyond California and, and is moving all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and and people have uh, well, what I can tell you every day that I talk about with investors is they ask, well, uh, how do I know that these additional credits under the low carbon fuel standard are going to be there? First of all, that the law is going to continue, and then secondly, what are the levels? What's the pricing of those? And there's volatility in that pricing. And who is supposed to take responsibility or liability for that uh, volatility? I think you know all too well that both the, both the developer and the offtaker typically come to some rapprochement, right, in, in, in sharing <laughs> the the volatility. Yeah. But but now, it's it's not we're not out of the weeds yet by any means. I mean. Um, I do a lot in SAF, and, mm-hmm. and I think the airlines are start, starting to say, okay, great, we're going to do this. But, you know, we're not an obligated party under under the LCFS. Right. I mean, what are we going to do with these credits? And yeah. uh, somebody's got to take them that has a, a you know, a, a business interest in taking them. And so um, what I would say is we are still at the early stage of developing incentives governmental incentives and state yeah. incentives and federal incentives that really work well to expedite 
project development, uh, technology development, and so forth, we're, we're still just at And the provide very, certainty. I mean, I think, still absolutely. think there's uncertainty. I think there's uncertainty now because who knows what will happen. I mean, I think there's a fair amount of certainty with, with the LCFS. However, um, and then some people might disagree with me there, but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's certainty there. We know CARB wants to have an LCFS. They want to keep a stable LCFS. It has survived multiple, numerous legal challenges. Um, they extended it to 20, 2030. They have a cost containment mechanism. They try to expedite uh, pathway approvals. Um, so they, they want it to work. So there's a fair amount of certainty there. With the RFS, Post 2022, I mean, there's uncertainty now. There's difficulties now, which we all know ch- chapter and verse um, about what that is. And I'm sure you probably see it real in real time as in, in project uh, finance. We don't know what's going to happen in 2022. We've heard whispers, or at least I've heard whispers about, you know, keep it, ditch it, you know, keep it and do a national LCFS. So I think there's, you know, what, what do we do about uh, SAF? What do we do to ensure novel pathways, you know, get the approval that they need and can qualify uh, under the program? So, I mean, there's just numerous, numerous issues that I think creates that level of um, uncertainty um, that uh, makes it more risky than it probably needs to be for, um, you know, for investors, both on the development side and on the on the other side as well. I think that. because we have a global business at Hamilton Club, we're companies from all over the world. Um, you know, we've represented uh, bio companies in uh, Canada, Latin America, uh, Europe. Uh, I think the most um, advanced area of the world that or geography that has uh, its eyes really set on refining these incentives is Western Europe. Yes, no, no question about. It. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they believe in the circular economy, which is sort of you, you can you can interpret that different ways. But let's just say they they believe in decarbonization, right? Yes, and, they're and everywhere. They're actually, put their money, government money, where their mouth is. Yeah, yeah. To use that old expression, um, you know, it's it's more difficult in the U.S. Um, and yeah. um, we're just as a people, we're not as liberal leaning immediately as as yeah. they. And no one's right or wrong. But um, I think it's important because, uh, you know, if you're looking for uh, money, you need to take a global perspective uh, when you're trying to get money. And and I think that your decision about where to uh, originate your technology and build your first project and maybe build out uh, several projects. We have we have clients that have. uh, you know, a parent company, let's say in the UK, and then they have uh, a subsidiary, uh, but still a major corporation in the US, and then a bunch of projects underneath that. They've got one plan for uh, Europe, they've got one plan for Latin America, they've got one plan for Asia. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, if you look back to what Jennifer Holmgren's done, again, I go back to her, her prescience on this in looking at taking the technology that she had and and getting partners in China, getting partners in India and starting to develop geographies where she had, um, uh, could, could 
could put her business in that geography and adapt it to that geography. I think that's another really important trend in the evolution of bio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So you mentioned, and this is the last question, you talked a little bit about um, SAF. You've done a lot of work in this in this space. You're involved in, in Kathy, uh, which is uh, you know the, the group, uh, for those who don't know, that uh, uh, represents, works with, um, the aviation industry, government, um, and uh, SAF producers among, among the many on these, these kinds of issues related to sustainable aviation fuel and has done so much uh, to uh, develop standards, so on and so forth. How do you see the role of SAF shaping up in the next five to 10 years? I kind of feel like it's the new black um, <laughs> if you will. It's absolutely um, everywhere. I mean, this industry has gone from outright skepticism um, to, you know, United Airlines in the White House um, asking for, along with some others, asking for incentives um, to, uh, you know, for, uh, for SAF. So it's kind of exciting times uh, from my standpoint. How are you seeing it? Well, um, I would divide my answer into pre-COVID and then COVID. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because yes. COVID has had a huge impact on the airline industry, as everybody knows. Yes. Um, and to put it in finance terms, which is boring, but it's important to understand, is, is this. I mean, airlines want to, to uh, use um, SAF. There's no question about it. Um, and, um, but, you know, if nobody's flying and they're not making any money, uh, yeah. first of all, it's, it's hard for them to, to invest. Second, uh, it's hard for them to enter into a offtake agreement with the developer or the project or the technology company to buy, uh, you know, SAF on a going forward basis. Because for, for one thing, right now, the credit quality of the airlines is, is not good. It's, it's not yeah. the fault, but I mean, it, it, nobody's blaming them, but it's just not good. So, you know, as bankers, we rely on things like feedstock agreements and um, de-risk technology or insured uh, technologies uh, or uh, fairly um, uh, long-term offtake agreements with uh, you know, uh, take or pay sort of inevitable uh, money is going to be spent and that the price is going to be sold. Um, if you have an airline that doesn't have good credit right now, and most of them don't, then um, it's hard for them to step up to that commitment in good yeah. faith. Yeah. Right? So I think it's a complex space. I think SAF is, is certainly one of the hottest areas in renewables, there's no question about it, uh, and it's going to continue to get a lot of attention. Um, and it's kind of a sexy area, <laughs> frankly. Yes. Uh, if you think about where we started with um, with ethanol and biodiesel a long time ago, so, and I'm looking for for things to expand into other fuels uh, for for other uh, transport uh, uh, processes, and also. Uh, clearly, the product side of bio has just begun. That revolution has just begun. Oh, absolutely. See it 
permeate everything, I think. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's going to become equally as uh, impactful to the planet as as the energy side. Yeah. All right. So we'll leave it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank John so much uh, for being thank on the you. show today. It was a great, great pleasure to, to talk with you. Me too. Thank and, you. <laughs> and for the folks uh, that are listening, if you're looking for more analysis on uh, future fuels and transport energy issues, Head to my website, Transport Energy Strategies, sign up for my newsletter, um, and, uh, and you can learn a whole lot more about what's going on in this space. It's all free. Thanks again for listening. And John, thanks again for being on the program. Thank you. Enjoyed it.